0: Hello and welcome back to the clean energy revolution from National Grid. I'm Max Almana, and in this podcast series, I'm discovering the ins and outs of energy in our lives today and in the future. Plus, I'm learning how people, organizations and nations are working together to make sure it's a clean and green one. Last time, we looked at the work that's going on to keep energy supplies secure in the face of world events and changing climates and conditions today. But for our last episode of the year, I want to look ahead once again. There are some unique challenges and tensions to face up to in the clean energy transition right now, but it doesn't mean that reaching our net zero goals and moving towards more renewable energy sources can take a backseat. To prevent the worst impacts of climate change on our planet's ecosystems, lives, and livelihoods, global temperature rise needs to be limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Currently, it's 1.1 degrees warmer than it was in the late 1800s. And in order to fight this, nations are committed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030. At the moment, electricity and heat are some of the biggest global emitters of greenhouse gases because the fuels used to create this energy aren't always emission-free, but by 2050, we need to have reached net-zero carbon emissions in the sector. So this time, off the back of another COP conference on climate and the UN Biodiversity Conference, I want to hone in on just how possible it is to find an alternative to greenhouse gas-emitting fossil fuels in energy production around the world. We'll be hearing from friends of National Grid in the U.S. to find out about the technology that's being harnessed and developed today, as well as the innovative new resources that are being invested in, in order to make our energy systems fossil-free. First up, I want to find out how a fossil-free approach is already starting to roll out in some gas and electricity systems across the United States. I'm talking with Don Shabazpour. He's the Director of Policy and Regulatory Strategy at National Grid in the United States. Don, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. W- where are you today?
1: I am actually working at home in New Jersey, just a few miles away from our office, and I work out of our office in Brooklyn.
0: What's your role with the U.S. policy and strategy team? What, what does a what does day-to-day look like for you?
1: Yeah, so my day to is really engaging a broad set of stakeholders. Uh, they're primarily policymakers, regulators, academia, technology companies, you know, various associations, industry associations, and our customers talking about the role of the gas network in the transition to net zero. I think what's really widely understood by all of these stakeholders is the role of, you know, solar and wind and storage, what's not really widely understood is that how does the gas network fit in? And the best way to characterize where the gas network is compared to the electricity network is, it's about, I would say, 30 years behind. You know, when I started my career, the conversations that people were having about the role of solar and wind and storage in the 1990s and the transformation of the electricity network, that conversation is now taking place in the gas network. And that's why there's sort of this gap of about 30 years.
0: Exciting stuff. It sounds like there's a lot to talk about. I'm excited about this. But first, I also want to bring in our other guest for this discussion. Tristan Brown is the Associate Professor of Energy Resource Economics from the State University of New York. Tristan, thanks for joining us. You're a part of the College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Can you tell us how all these these areas that we're talking about all connect to one another when we're looking forward to a cleaner more energy efficient future
2: well it's it's really about determining how we can most cost effectively prevent catastrophic climate change at the end of the day. When we think about you know environmental science, we're thinking about climate change, the impacts of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And I think you know we generally recognize we need to reduce those emissions, but we've stopped or we, maybe we never really started talking enough about how we do so in a cost effective manner. And the reason that's important is ultimately the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, the International Energy Agency for close to a decade now have been reporting that we we are spending uh, quite literally pennies on the dollar in terms of what we need to on decarbonization to avoid catastrophic climate change. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not so much a matter of are we going to reduce those emissions? It's a matter of are we going to spend in a cost effective manner on decarbonization so that we can decarbonize as much as we possibly can.
0: Now, there, there are various low carbon emitting sources of energy also in the mix for the generation. But what does it mean to be Truly f- fossil free? Is there a place for fossil fuels in this transition?
2: It's a great question because at the end of the day, you know, part of it's we need to be fossil free. Um, Part of it's also we want to reduce our uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and especially our fossil greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible. And so that's really when we start thinking about the path forward, it comes down to not just the magnitude, you know, how much can we reduce our fossil emissions by, but also how quickly can we do it? And I, I think those two taken together are really what become crucial. And so at the end of the day, you know, we know that we can fully decarbonize. We know that we can move away from fossil fuels it starts to come down to though which technologies are we going to utilize and which technologies are available to us so that we can start doing that now and when we think about a lot of the technologies we talk about like renewable natural gas and like hydrogen that's where we ultimately see there is a near-term role for those that's going to make them look more attractive than some of the other options that are discussed don any thoughts to that
1: tristan really captured it well and i really go back to what tristan was mentioning about the sheer magnitude i think The general public needs to appreciate the scale, right? When you think about integration of fossil fuels today, it is basically embedded not only in direct use, what I mean by transportation, whether it's your car or aviation uh, and the way you heat your home, but it's also into plastics and almost everything that's being manufactured, right, from the glasses we're wearing, uh, from everything else. And this transition will take several decades, right? This will not be an overnight. When you are moving towards decarbonization, it is a transformation of our economy, and it basically touches everything that we consume and use, and it's also integrated into every activity. Every activity that we you know, undertake has some sort of a carbon footprint associated with it.
0: Can you give me an idea of what percentage the U.S. energy supply currently comes from fossil fuels? And B, how does that measure up to other big carbon-emitting nations around the world right now?
2: So the U.S. gets about 80% of its total energy From fossil fuels, right? If we're looking at all transportation sectors, you know, renewables specifically is only about 12%. Nuclear is making up much of that difference because that's a zero emission fuel source, but some people consider it to be a fossil fuel. So 80% fossil fuels. What's more important than just the percentage of fossil fuels, though, and I I mention this because when you talk about how the United States stacks up with other large emitters, other large emitters nowadays, we're really talking about countries like China, India, Indonesia, and their large emitters in part, you know, obviously, they have very large populations, but also because they've continued to rely very heavily on the most polluting fossil fuels. Um, not all fossil fuels are created the same. Coal, for example, has about twice the carbon intensity as natural gas. And so those very large emitters outside of the U.S. rely very heavily on coal. That's been one of the big transitions we've already seen here in the United States over the last decade is the U.S. has managed to partially decarbonize largely because coal has been displaced with natural gas. And so, when we talk about the overall percentage of fossil fuels, it's also important to note just what fossil fuels we're speaking about as well.
1: So, Tristan did a really great job setting the global context. I'll just go to the next layer, somewhat more regional, where we serve in the Northeast of National, in the Northeast of the United States. The biggest source of emissions in the Northeast, number one, is buildings, and then number two is transportation sector, and number three and four is power generation and agriculture and waste. It's not exactly the same for all of the states. So in states like New York that are bigger, agriculture and waste is actually number three, and then power generation is number four, and then the other states is vice versa. 30 years ago, the number one source of emissions in the Northeast was power generation. But over the last 30 years, a lot has been done. Coal has actually been displaced. There is no more really coal generation in the Northeast. It's basically natural gas, nuclear and renewables. And in the building sector in the northeast if you look at it and I my definition of northeast I'm basically saying New York and New England 60% of the homes and buildings and businesses are utilizing natural gas. There is 25% roughly approximately that's using heating oil. We are the last place in the United States that's using heating oil in the northeast. And then the remaining is primarily, most of that is electric resistance. I think it's around 12 to 13% of the Northeast is using electric resistance. There is some wooden stoves, is very small, and heat pumps. In the Northeast, we are tackling the thorniest sector. Interesting.
0: In our previous episodes, we've talked about fossil-free vision. Can you explain what this means for everyone who hasn't heard of it?
1: Yes. And in short, it's basically our vision, how we achieve net zero. It has four primary pillars. The first one is energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is basically the foundation of any pathway that gets you to net zero. It doesn't matter how you heat or cool your buildings, they just can't leak. The second one is what we are calling these hybrid heating systems. This is the adoption of heating systems that are in shoulder months in the Northeast. Let's say October, November and, and in early spring in March and April they're running on heat pumps and in the coldest months of the year in January, February they're running on gas. You can actually drastically reduce the demand for natural gas which can also drastically reduce emissions. The third pillar is what we are calling targeted electrification and network geothermal. Electrification will take is a cornerstone of of any pathway to net zero primarily in the transportation sector, but here I'm talking about buildings again, so some buildings, particularly some of the newer buildings, electrification will be extensively utilized for heating, and also geothermal, network geothermal, but it is a solution, it is part of our portfolio, but it won't be adopted everywhere, but it's also a lever that we can also utilize. The fourth pillar, what we're calling 100% fossil free gas network, where we are saying that by 2050, We will be utilizing the existing gas network, but the gas that will be delivered, the molecules, will not be coming from fossil gas or natural gas. They will be primarily renewable natural gas, which is methane, but it's coming from biogenic sources, which means existing waste streams, and hydrogen, and hydrogen, what we're calling green hydrogen, which means we will be using renewable electricity to produce hydrogen. They'll be using renewable natural gas and hydrogen to decarbonize the gas network
2: adding on to what Don's talking about with renewable na- natural gas in particular, because right? this is an issue that confuses a lot of people. And that's a you know, very good explanation on the recycling, right? You're, you're basically recycling carbon. With renewable natural gas, there's even more than just that, though, because uh, you know, when we look at renewable natural gas that's produced just about anywhere around the world, and certainly the case in the United States, it's coming from what we would term waste sources. Uh, and so that's really biomethane, that is being produced today and is being emitted into the atmosphere today. So when you think about dairy farms, for example, landfills, wastewater treatment plants, these are all important sources of biomethane, but it's just being released in the atmosphere. And the reason that's important is methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. Different jurisdictions uh, weight it differently. Most of the world considers it to be at least about 23, 24 times more potent than an equal amount of carbon dioxide. Here in New York, we actually consider it to be 84 times more potent than an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide. And so it's not even just that you're displacing a fossil fuel when you are using renewable natural gas in place of a fossil natural gas, the majority of the climate benefit actually comes from the fact that you are taking that methane that would otherwise be released into the atmosphere and you are destroying it so it can no longer have that incredibly potent effect. And so this is a, a technology we actually consider it um, when we look at the, the overall carbon footprint, we actually consider it to be carbon negative, not in the sense that you're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and burying it, but rather in the sense that you are taking taking this very, very potent greenhouse gas, and you're making sure that it's no longer admitted into the atmosphere where it's going to do far more damage to the climate than an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide would uh, cause. The technologies
0: that we're talking about, does this mean that people will have to buy and install new systems in their homes and workplaces? Because I'm just thinking of the, the, the cost that we'll need to add on to make a greener, cleaner future.
2: You know, there is going to be some of that. Um, when we talk about electrification, for example, as Don was describing, that important component of the fossil-free plan, you know, when your, your uh, natural gas heater dies, you may end up getting an air source heat bump that's uh, powered by electricity instead. There's going to be certainly much of that as part of any electrification program, but there's no single bullet Rather, you're going to have to take a portfolio approach. And what that portfolio approach is really focused on is doing this in the most cost-effective manner possible, Mm -hmm. right? You want to get the most bang for your buck at the end of the day. And when you start talking about certain technologies like using hydrogen blending or using renewable natural gas or a combination thereof, these are what we often term drop-in renewables in the sense that they are able to utilize your existing energy infrastructure. Another way of looking at that is we're, we're simply recycling it. Uh, We are minimizing the overall financial impact. We're minimizing the financial costs so that we can then have additional resources available to decarbonize further than we would be if we were selecting the most expensive option that we had.
0: Tristan, your work looks at how energy and environmental policy play a part in making different kinds of energy sources achievable. Looking at this vision, why are these options the ones that have been identified as most viable on the path to a fossil-free future?
2: We cannot avoid catastrophic climate change without renewable natural gas. Uh, it's my very firm belief of that, and that's primarily because we are destroying biomethane that is otherwise going straight into the atmosphere. And because of how potent a greenhouse gas biomethane is, really all methane, but you know especially when we're thinking about wastewater treatment plants, dairy farms, et cetera, we cannot really avoid catastrophic climate change without greatly reducing that. I think the UN IPCC a couple of years ago came out with a report saying we have to slash those by at least 50 percent over the next 25 years. And so that means we need to incentivize those reductions of those biomethane emissions, which also means we really need to make sure that we're recycling that and using it for a better purpose, especially a purpose that's going to displace fossil fuels.
0: Can other of you share examples of where this technology has already been successfully rolled out and is reducing carbon emissions in in a specific area.
2: California, a little over 10 years ago, implemented something called the low carbon fuel standard, which ultimately has incorporated, even though it's for transportation rather than say building energy, it's incorporated renewable natural gas in a very, very substantial way. And renewable natural gas has been one of the larger generators of uh, carbon reduction credits under this plan. It's gone to the point now where dairy farms, landfills, other sources of biomethane from all across the country are now participating in this single state program that's now expanded Oregon and Washington State have both been included in it as well. That's a technology that we have available today. California has demonstrated that you can roll this technology out, achieve very large market penetration very rapidly. So I'd say that's probably, at least here in the United States, that's one of the bigger examples that we've seen in recent years.
0: I'd like to know what the low-hanging fruit or the, the most achievable path we can take to a fossil-free future.
1: Yeah, so that's a really great question, right? Because you're thinking about sequencing this, This decade is a decade where you really need to do energy efficiency, electrification of the transportation sector, while ramping up the very large offshore wind projects that have been announced, both across the ponds in the U.S. and the U.K. and around the world, and and all these other um, storage and and, uh, solar projects. Because if you can't decarbonize the generation source, you may actually not produce a lot of benefits.
2: What it really comes down to is valuing the benefits that they provide, uh, especially to the climate. You know, this is not something the world has really done very well um, and certainly has not been doing it much at all until very recently. Most people would know this as a carbon price. Um, many governments utilize the concept of a social cost to carbon, which is essentially if you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions, there is a value that you are providing to the world in that process and it puts a dollar value on that benefit that you ultimately get. And so from a policy standpoint, it's really about incentivizing those technologies that are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions quickly which is something we, we frequently forget because at the end of the day if you reduce emissions you know, reduce one ton of emissions tomorrow that has a much bigger positive impact on the climate than if you reduce one ton of emissions 20 30 years down the road so you know how can you start reducing those emissions quickly and you tie those together and you start looking at those technologies that are going to enable to achieve that outcome we have seen incredible advances really just in the last 10 to 20 years, technologies that people weren't even talking about 20 years ago that now are starting to play a very substantial role. And we're hopefully going to start reaching the point where we do develop and deploy these technologies fast enough to have a measurable impact on the climate.
0: Don, the Fossil Free Vision mentions customers' rights to choose their own path to decarbonization. How realistic will it be that everyone can afford this
1: What makes addressing climate change really challenging is that you're managing multiple things, all of them simultaneously, and they really include efficiency, affordability, reliability, resiliency, equity. Equity means you you don't leave any customer behind and customer choice. Customers live in, if you think about whoever you are listening, they are living in all different kinds of buildings, right? You might be living in a multifamily brownstone in Brooklyn or Boston or, or a high-rise that was just constructed. And I live in a suburban home, right, that was built in the 1970s. The average cost to retrofit these homes lands somewhere between 20 dollars to $40,000. Now, because I'm just curious, you know, given what I do for a living, I've actually gotten a quote to convert my house from a gas. It's about right? Very few people have $28,000 upfront capital costs. So how does a customer look at this? Well, it depends who that customer is, right? Where you are, it's giving that sort of perspective and then looking at all of these various things that I mentioned that you have to manage simultaneously where it gets to this sort of portfolio approach and why you do need all of these technologies.
0: So this brings me to my final question, actually. So this question's to the both of you. It's looking into the future. When you're waking up in the morning in 20 years time, what sort of energy will you be using? What sort of tech are you likely to see in your homes, workplaces, out and about in your daily life? Will we be on hovercrafts? Will we be like the Jensen's?
2: (laughs) Oh, this is, I mean, this is such a great question because humans do a terrible job of predicting the future. 20 years out, it's, it's incredibly difficult to predict what the future is going to look like in terms of the technologies that are going to be available, which is why you know, I always take the approach that we need, to, we need to be flexible. We need to utilize those technologies that are available to us, and we need to utilize those technologies that are going to provide us with the largest contributions to our goals. And so rather than saying one technology or another is going to be available, I'll take it broader and I'll say the technologies that we're going to be utilizing in 20 years are going to be those that are going to have the greatest benefit to the climate. That's going to be really the, the biggest issue we face humanity does over the next 10 to 20 years is how do we decarbonize and how do we do it as quickly as possible. And so I, I won't say I know what those technologies are guaranteed to look like 20 years from now, but I do know those are the technologies that we'll be utilizing by then.
1: The future is technology driven but you need the right policy framework to scale. So everything we talked about, you do need the right policies to get to the scale issue, to adopt them. If I wake up in 20 years and this, if this requires a lot of disruptions on customers' end, we won't be successful. What I mean by disruption is if you ask people to retrofit their home, to rip out you know how they're doing things and get rid of their appliances we won't be successful. This has to feel seamless. So in other words, as we, the energy industry, you know, build significant amount of offshore wind over the next two decades, we upgrade our transmission systems, we integrate storage and hydrogen from the average customer. Hopefully this will seem seamless. So some people won't even know that their emission has gone down because they don't really think about, right? I don't think most people, average average person walks around thinking about, hey, I'm using electricity today. What's the source of this generation, right? If we can swap that out seamlessly and we can do the same thing on the gas side, the molecules, so you retain your existing boilers and water heaters and you know the way you cook, that from my perspective is also a definition of success.
0: Well, on that note, <laughs> we'll get there. I'm hopeful for the future. I need, to, I need to believe in that. And I hope other people believe in that as well. And I want to just say thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, sharing your insights, your input, your looks on the future and where we're heading. So thank you to the both of you, gentlemen.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Don and Tristan for sharing some really interesting examples of how the energy transition really is happening in a way that eliminates fossil fuels from the mix in the future. Although they touched on quite a few cool technologies there, as well as ways we can connect policymaking to our planet, I want to look at a few more emerging ideas now and how all this fossil-free innovation adds up to healthier lives and ecosystems everywhere. Now, I'm talking with Lisa Lamper, who's Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at National Grid, as well as the founder of National Grid Partners. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for making the time. Uh, My pleasure. Good to meet you, Max. Can I assume from your job title that you're a technology whiz?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, a little. Right. I started my career as a software developer, so I did work on technology early in my career. Uh, prior to joining National Grid, I actually worked at a clean tech private venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. So I spent quite a lot of time on energy as well. Um, I worked at Intel Corporation for 19 years. Also, I was the managing director uh, for our software and services sector. So a variety of roles, but I, I certainly have my roots in in technology.
0: Let's dive a little deeper. What Inspired you to turn your love of tech and disruptive startups towards the global energy sector?
3: Well, I made the transition to energy officially in, in 2016 when I joined the the Group. Uh, at the time, we were seeing an emergence of energy startups post the clean tech bubble in 2008. So there was some irrational exuberance, I think we'll all admit, in the mid 2000s around energy startups, but I saw several companies on the rise. And I had this feeling that there was a bit of a a renaissance underway, which kind of piqued my interest. I've spent a lot of time looking at industries. There's a famous burning platform paradigm that people talk about where industries like media and retail and telecom get disrupted. It gets disrupted by startups. These new entrants, they come in with new technology. They're serving the underserved customer And the energy sector, healthcare sector, logistics, those are some of the industries that are just beginning to be disrupted. That was really compelling to me because it's really where venture capitals get their energy and it's where they make the most returns. It's the reason that I joined National Grid.
0: Moving forward, why do you think energy, and in particular the current challenges we're facing around climate change, supply, and the cost of living, present us with an opportunity for really wor- world-changing work.
3: Well, uh, John Pettigrew, our CEO, remarked recently in, uh, in National Grid's half-year financial results that security of energy, supply, and the affordability of energy is top of mind. You know, we're heading into winter. Some of our more vulnerable customers do need support. And I think you know that National Grid is donating more than $78 million this winter and next to charities in the UK and the US that are working on the front line of the energy crisis to support those who need it the most. At the same time, you know, National Grid knows that we have to keep investing in downturns. So we attended COP 27 in Egypt, talking about our continued commitment to the clean energy transition. And 2050 is coming, mid-century is coming. And if anything, the challenge people are facing around these high energy bills illustrates how important it is to keep investing in startup technologies that bring more energy into the system at, at much lower costs. And it's really what we've been doing At National Grid Partners, we've got an investment portfolio that helps customers find savings in their energy costs. We have a company called Carbon Lighthouse that does that for them. We have another company called Omnidian that guarantees customer investments in solar will perform. We've got a company called Leap in our portfolio that helps more clean energy get into the grid by making it easier for smaller suppliers to get into the market. And then we have an investment in a company called Line Vision that helps us to transmit up to 30% more clean energy through our existing infrastructure, so without having to build new towers or invest in new critical infrastructure. So it's technologies like these that help National Grid deliver on its vision for future energy systems. We want them to be clean. We want them to be fair. We want them to be affordable.
0: Wow. And what kinds of people are coming to these projects, these ideas and, and, and how are they making it happen? Is it, is it all scientists? Or are they entrepreneurs? What kind of backgrounds and, and roles do they play in transforming our energy future?
3: Well, at National Group Partners, we have two major groups that are entrepreneurial. We have our investment group, which is our startup portfolio. And so we see entrepreneurs from a wide range of backgrounds. There, data scientists, some are finance experts, some are hardware engineers, uh, some come from academia. Uh, we even have some military veterans. So the founder of a company called Sinset we invested in recently, he started his career 10 years ago. And he was in business development for a big newspaper chain. <laughs> and then we've got oh. the founder of a company called Verity, which is an EV battery pack solution for heavy equipment. He previously ran an environmental cleanup company and I mentioned Carbon Lighthouse earlier, they're an energy efficiency solution for buildings. Uh, He ran an energy efficiency program for the state of New York, and then he launched his company while he was still finishing his MBA at Stanford. And then one of my favorites is Tomorrow.ai, they were fighter pilots in the Israeli army. So they developed the solution to better predict weather patterns, really to keep themselves safe as they were flying these jets. But we also have an innovation function, and for them, Ideas come from all corners. We've got national great colleagues that we get ideas from who are more energy operators, uh, college campuses, big companies with technologies they haven't yet commercialized. It is a skill set that is really needful because we have a big impact. We've done Horizon 3 innovation projects, which are focused on breakthrough technologies, new markets, new business models. We've done 12 innovation projects and have another half dozen or so in process. And so the skill set that's required to do that type of innovation is really diverse. And just to give you a couple of examples, one that I think you'll like, Max, we invented a food waste energy modular solution. It helps reduce the customer's carbon footprint. So it's involved with using uh, a behind-the-meter anaerobic digester. So it converts on-site food waste and organic matter into biogas, into heat, into electricity, So this solution can be deployed at large producers of food waste with potential to participate in demand response or energy efficiency programs. It's a really compelling solution that our own innovation team created. Uh, We invested in another company that we call the Ocean Brain, which is a subsea cable insurance technology. So it's, it's an innovative risk management software that helps reduce The risk of cable strikes and all of the associated insurance claims for those subsea cables designed to reduce the offshore interconnection insurance costs and of course to maximize uh, interconnector availability. It does that by combining these complex data sources using machine learning to automatically quantify and forecast risk of that external damage. So two really good examples of more than a dozen projects we developed in our innovation function.
0: That is really exciting. And Lisa, being the whiz that you are, what excites you about the kind of innovation you're seeing and why is it so necessary to give energy a major shakeup?
3: I think the biggest thing, particularly from the utility perspective, is, is shaking up from the status quo, right? We really need to increase our pace significantly. You know, startups are ready, they're willing, they're able to engage and we need to engage them. We we announced a few startups recently that I think are worth calling out. One is a company called Exotico, and they give companies an x-ray-like vision to prevent line damage and accidents that can increase the cost of those projects and the carbon footprint for those big infrastructure projects. Really compelling solution, but they need a customer. They need to engage. We invested in a company called Visionary AI, which is a... Software image signal processing company, it helps cameras to achieve a better image quality even when it's nearly totally dark. So they use their artificial intelligence to dramatically improve the quality of images and videos that can be taken at the edge in real time.
0: It's a game changer for road safety, which we care about, and certainly for infrastructure security. A lot of people are probably concerned. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the energy prices over the next few months. And of course, the world events that are happening now. What words of wisdom would you be able to share to perhaps inspire us that a fossil free future is in reach? And will it really benefit all of us?
3: We have grand ambitions. We're planning to eliminate fossil fuels from our existing gas networks, deliver you know, natural gas, renewable natural gas and green hydrogen, we're going to have to start demonstrating these capabilities, working with these startups. So I think that's a tremendous opportunity. The technology is there. I'd be more concerned if the technology wasn't there. We've come a long way from cleantech 1.0. Solar, wind, EVs, they're much more affordable than they were back, you know, two decades ago. And so ongoing investment in these technologies will surface a next generation of solutions That haven't been discovered, haven't yet been commercialized, and we need to continue to pursue that. I think we're not going to get to clean energy mid-century in silos. We're not going to do it as a single entity. We have another group that we call our alliances group, which is focused on building relationships with fellow travelers. We actually formed an X grid alliance, which is an alliance of, right now, 94 utilities. And these are utilities that have similar business profiles as National Grid, but don't compete in market because they're not in market with us by virtue of the fact that we're a utility. And so we formed the Next Grid Alliance, these 94 Global Utilities, for purposes of collaborating intentionally, pushing new technologies across a wide geographic footprint, so that we can get to decarbonization faster.
0: Wow. Well said. That has brought some inspiration and hopefulness the solutions are right there it's not this far away kind of oh we're never going to get there it's this idea oh, we can't get it we're doing them right now they are there but we all need to do it together and we need to do it now so thank you lisa thank you so much for all your work and thank you so much for taking the time to chat today my pleasure thank you max it was a pleasure Wow, there are some really unique ideas and projects coming out of the energy sector. And I really liked Lisa's point that if we continue to make tech innovation a priority, we'll only be improving on progress we've already made. Although we have a way to go before we can live in that fossil-free world, it's good to remember at this point that we are moving forwards. Looking at the news headlines, it may seem tough and gloomy for our planet's future right now. But I hope, just like me, that hearing these stories gives you a bit of positivity. i love to see how much work is going on around the world on every level to move us away from fossil fuels. It's also really cool to know that this change is starting to happen in our own neighborhoods, too. It's also tantalizing to think that in 20 years' time, our children and their children could be waking up to a world that has moved beyond the challenges of figuring out how to make the tech and is looking forward to meeting 2050 net zero goals with confidence. That's definitely a positive thought to hold on to as we move into 2023. I'll be back in the new year with more awesome insights into world of energy and some expert predictions for what the year ahead might hold. Until then, take care of yourselves and have a safe and happy new year. I'm Max LaManna, and you've been listening to The Clean Energy Revolution from National
1: Grid.